topic of trust today, the twin pillars of love, trust and commitment. This will be a two-part message. I will complete the message, Lord willing, this evening. Now, in thinking on this idea of trust, if a complete stranger calls you on the phone and says you've won a million dollars, then all you need to do is give them your bank account information so they can transfer the money into your bank. You're thinking, yeah, right, scam 101. I mean, here we go. You would either immediately hang up or completely refuse to give out this information and let them know that they were a scam. If this person called you, was someone you whom you recognize their voice? You'd be a little bit more liable to think about the scenario, obviously. But owing to the old adage, if it's too good to be true, then it must be. You'd probably quickly still dismiss it. I'd imagine most of us would take this call and be like, <laughs> click. We make a mental note to be cautious around this person to whom you just spoke, if it's someone you recognized. Now, obviously, there is technology out there that can mimic voices today and do a very good job of that. Now, if this person was your spouse from their number, and they called and they said the grocery store sweepstakes, and you and your spouse were selected to win the sweepstakes, whatever monetary value it was, you'd be a lot more inclined to listen and believe the statement. Your trust of a person's statement comes from a variety of factors. Number one, what is the relationship of the individual to me? What is the history or the character I know about this person? Are they trustworthy? Do they have a good reputation? Are they fickle? Is the caller calling from some legitimate agency? Is this a legitimate sweepstake? Can I Google it and find that, you know, I'd go online and say, hey, is this legitimate? You know, you'd want multiple sources. Probably some news sources to potentially talk about it. If it's the government that's calling, what is the caller's government role? Is this a trusted institution? I mean, there's sometimes I've gotten phone calls saying that it's the IRS from down in the States or the CRA and, you know, my number is going to be suspended. Uh, you know, it's a classic scam call. Now, first of all, the government doesn't usually give out money, so you'd be quite suspect. Is this the means by which the government agency ordinarily interacts? Does the government request your banking information over the phone? We would understand no. So if, not, if it's not the government calling and saying we're going to give you this money, what company is it? Is this a reputable company? You know, these are all thoughts that are going to scan through your head as to the legitimacy of the call and the potentially good news. But this is all a factor of trust or mistrust. Truth be told, we live in a culture of mistrust. Now, the idea of the word trust, confidence, a reliance, or a resting of the mind on the integrity, veracity, justice, friendship, or other sound principle of another person. That is the definition by Webster's Dictionary. Trust is a matter of the heart. Just to use social media or even a computer, there is a bunch of legal jargon the manufacturer does, desires that you read. I mean, you open up a computer, you install the software, you go through it, you accept all this end-user license agreement, I think the EULA, uh, end-user license agreement. Correct me if I'm wrong on this, but there's like all this stuff, agreement, 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 agreement. I mean, there's all this legalese jargon that people are wanting you to accept. I mean, even to get on social media, there's like, are you 18, are you this, or this, you know, there's a lot of stuff on there. 
They don't, want, they don't trust that you won't sue them, and so they're covering their bases. They don't want you to steal their intellectual property, and they're trying to protect that as well. Now, even online, there are a lot of alias names of people who want to hide behind the veneer of someone they're not. You know, child predators might say that they're a young person when in fact they're like a 40 or 50 year old. Sometimes a person is hurt, you know, in this idea of trust, sometimes a person is hurt as a child in their stage of innocence, and as a means of protection, they vow to never trust as long as there is no escape plan. I will trust you as long as I can get a way out. I'll trust you up to this point, but I'm not giving you any more trust. Sometimes even a close friend can turn on you, leaving you wounded and bewildered and resolving, I'll never trust again. There is no true trust of a person to hold true to their word. You know, in Proverbs chapter 7, verses 19 and 20, a wife, it talks about a wife being unfaithful to her husband while he's away on business. It says, for the goodman is not at home, he has gone a long journey, he hath taken a bag of money with him and will come home at the day appointed. She's luring the suitor in while her husband's away. That's violating trust. And the more society and people live for themselves, the harder it is going to be to trust because each person is their own highest trust and object of commitment. The very bedrock of society is trust, and there's no greater physical illustration of trust than marriage. I mean, with the disintegration of marriage, many are hesitant to marry for fear of rejection. Others might see the utter disregard for marriage and view it lightly. They live for themselves and will create legal means of protecting their own interests. Some who want to get married, and I mean, uh, they say, well, you know, someone wants to get married, and they say, well, I've got a lot of stuff and I want to protect it, so I'm going to have a prenuptial agreement. I'm making an insurance on the trust that I'm giving to you. Is that really trust? There's an insurance policy on the relationship because trust is feeble. Trust goes to the heart of who we are, and it hurts when our trust is broken. The person might be saying, well, I've worked my years for all of this stuff, and I don't want to lose this if my spouse leaves me. Some may not want to make a loving, lifelong commitment and choose to never tie the knot. There are some who are just in a relationship for what they can get out of it. Out of the other person, as soon as there's no more benefit, the relationship ends. Some may choose to marry but are never really committed until death do us part, but instead and mean until desires change do us part. You know, until we kind of grow apart, then eh, whatever, we'll just divorce and go on to the next, next step. Sometimes business partners may be all in. But when times get tough, one of the partners is like, see you later, I'm out of here. As a young adult, I remember one of my friends, if they were to get a girlfriend, it could possibly happen, you know, all the rest of the guys were like chopped liver. I mean, you could try to get a hold of that person, they were gone. I mean, they were always out with their girlfriend. Your commitment to someone is ultimately tied to your trust of them. Would you be a committed person Would you be committed to a person who is habitually not true to their word? Would you be committed to a person whose ideas were unsettled? Would you be committed to a person who would abandon you when you were in a pickle? Why not? The reason is that commitment necessitates a giving up of my self-interest for the care and well-being of another. Here in 2 Samuel 22, would you follow along with me as I read? 
David is talking about a trust. And we get this idea of trust, but I want to bring it to an everyday practical (laughs) application. But the rubber meets the road. Trust, we will not do much for Christ if we don't trust him. But if, you know, and it says we must love him, but love necessitates a trust and a commitment. In 2 Samuel 22, verse 1, And David spake unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord had delivered him out of the hand of all his enemies and out of the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my rock, and him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower and my refuge, my Savior. Thou savest me from violence. I will call on the, on the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from mine enemies. When the waves of death compassed me, the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about, the snares of death prevented me. In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried to my God, and he did hear my voice out of his temple, and my cry did enter into his ears. David is placing a trust in God. And I want to talk about this idea of trust today. When you think about trust and becoming vulnerable, to make yourself vulnerable before someone else means you are giving them a level of trust and commitment. I mean, for a horse to lay down in a field, put its feet up, and start going on the ground, it's trusting there are no predators around. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Commitment means that I'm making a public promise. The idea, the very definition of commitment, the act of pledging or engaging or the act of exposing or endangering. This is to make yourself vulnerable to another person. And I want to ask you this morning, what level are you willing to be made vulnerable before the Lord as a voluntary act? Now, he sees everything you do. We understand it up here. We understand that God is the creator. We understand that he sees everything. This is all mental. But it's how I live my life that takes it from my brain, put it to my heart, and how do I live my life? David is saying, I've got some bad circumstances. I mean, the commitment of Christ shows his love to God himself for the institution of the church. He made himself of no reputation. He ill-regarded his vulnerability to man because of his love, his trust in God, his commitment to God, and his commitment to man. Because he desires a reconciliation of humanity with God, he was completely vulnerable. But his vulnerability and his love cost him his life. It was not just a sacrifice, but it was a commitment to abide with us. I mean, it's a serious statement made by the Lord. In Hebrews 13, 5, let your conversation, that means your lifestyle, be without covetousness. But he says, and be content with such things as ye have, for he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. That is an incredible statement. He's saying, listen, I'm committed to you. I'm trusting in you. 
and I love you. He says, I love you, but my love is extended with his trust and his commitment. He's committed. But love demands trust and commitment. Trust, it demands some transaction where you evaluate the heart connection and the known commitment of the other person. I mean, commitment is a threat-risk analysis you make to enter into an agreement with the other person. How much commitment do I want to give to this person based upon what I'm going to return? I mean, there's all this interaction type, you know, uh, (laughs) this kind of uh, transactional type ideas in our mind if you think about this commitment. You might have some different ideas on this, but just take where I'm going with this for a second. It encompasses, in regards to your commitment, consequences should your commitment to this person diminish or be eliminated. Trust is absolutely critical to any real and lasting relationship. You make the choice to enter into a transaction based on the known factors of the person whom you're obligating yourself to. The question I want to ask you this morning is, will you trust the Lord? How does your life show that you trust him? And the question is, why won't you trust him? What has Christ done that should merit my complete love, meaning my absolute trust and unswerving commitment to him? The Bible tells us in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's trust and commitment. Joshua 1, 8. The Bible is not a relic. It is a reality for life. This book of the, Joshua says, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Many only seek God for what they can hopefully get out of him. How he makes them feel. Or some might say what secular advantage they can gain by being associated with God or the church. This is like a person who never desires to go into a lifelong commitment. And the principle this morning is let a love for God be the foundation for your trust and commitment. You know what? Trust is a scary thing if you've had your trust broken in the past. But I'm saying we don't move forward if we don't learn to trust. And I want to talk about what God, as I was studying this, it was amazing. I mean, God was just giving truths. It was unbelievable. I was somewhat struggling this week and a lot of things going through my mind. And I got alone with the Lord yesterday. And I said, God, I I was a little bit frustrated over some things. And I just poured out my heart to God. And the point he came to is trust me. Trust me. And I want to talk about this morning. God's already done a work in my heart. I trust that God will do a work in your heart. Let's go to the Lord and ask for his blessing upon this time. But my friend, we have to learn to trust. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I love you. God, it is a privilege. Bring forth your holy word. And Lord, I am so thankful. There are times of life, much like what David speaks about here, where the waves of affliction and trial and people just seem to come wave after wave after wave. Sometimes in death, the waves of emotion, Lord, are so great upon us. 
Lord, we have nowhere to turn. We talk to people and it still doesn't satisfy. But Father, if we learn to trust you, we can come to the place that is our rock. Father, I pray that this verse would move from the head to the heart in regards to how we apply it to our everyday living. Lord, I pray that whomever here this morning might be challenged or discouraged, that you'd comfort their hearts. Father, who might ever might, whoever might be going a wrong direction, Lord, please redirect them. God, keep our hearts fervent for thee. God, give us the foundation so that our life is not a sea tossed to and fro, but Lord, we are settled upon thee. So God, I pray that you would use every word that I speak. I commit myself to you, and God, I ask you to work. I love you. So God, you do the work this morning, and we'll praise you. In Jesus' precious name I pray, amen. If you look at verses 5 and 6 here in 2 Samuel 22, it is a trial of fear. When the waves of death compassed me, the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about, the snares of death prevented me. Can you ever, is there any time in your life that you could say, I can kind of associate well with those verses right there? I think that many of us could sympathize with it. All of us have faced trials and hardships. Endure difficult challenges that stretches our emotion and wreaks a great fatigue upon our body. And you know what I love about the Bible? The psalmist is transparent about his life. He's saying, listen, (laughs) I might be King David, but I don't have a clue what I'm doing. He says, listen, the waves of death, I mean, it's just like, wham, wham. I remember one time when my wife and I, we were in Hawaii, we were out snorkeling, and uh, we were in, there was an area with some surf, some waves, and uh, we were moving along, and there were some times, if I wasn't paying attention, those waves would push me into rocks. It was uncomfortable. It didn't feel good. I mean, it would just, I mean, it was a power much greater than myself. I mean, there are emotional things that come upon us. I mean, it is like a tornado, and you're trying to hold it back, and you're just like a toothpick out in a field against the wind. You're no match. But David is saying, I'm vulnerable, I'm weak, and I'm powerless in these circumstances. Every one of us, I don't care how strong you are, I don't care how strong you are mentally, you will have circumstances that you will be powerless. And this powerlessness can drive you to five conclusions, seemingly, that I had come up with. Number one, utter despair, anger, outrage, and bitterness. Number two, A self-deceived notion, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and get going. Number three, seek a secular source for assistance. Number four, drive you to seek the Lord, but with conditions attached. And number five, cast yourself with no conditions, no expectations upon the Savior. Many have encountered death. Some may have encountered public ridicule in some form or fashion. It is in these moments, as David says, the waves of death compass me. I mean, 
he had it as he's sitting there with Saul, and he has a spear go right by your head. Um, I think he would be thinking about life a little bit. I mean, you got a spear. <laughs> I don't think Saul's very happy with me right now. I don't think that was a kind gesture. I don't think he's trying to wish me happy birthday with that. I want to ask you the question this morning, where are you going in life? And you begin to think about how, life short, how short life really is. You think about how much certain people mean to you. Death, for whomever, if you lose someone significant in your life, it leads a hole in your life. And there are times you can be walking around and all of a sudden that wave of emotion comes upon you. You just start weeping and you don't know why you're weeping. Because you begin to remember that loved one that was passed away. And you're smitten with waves of emotion. I mean, anger comes, fear of the future, sorrow of unfulfilled dreams. I mean, I wish that person would have been able to do this, or I could have done this with them, whatever. Violence might come, drive you to numb the pain with some vice. The list goes on. Some may run for cover. Others may freeze. Others may resort to violence. The psalmist's transparency is showing us how to handle life, not religiously. I remember in a great trial in my life that I had back when I was in the military, I, had, uh, I went to church and, and there were some relationships that had broken off and, and I, was, I was broken. I mean, I was just devastated. And I had a guy say, oh, go read your Bible and go home. I was like, what? I said, what? I said, you're, you're not even willing to listen. And now, it was for a benefit. Because it showed me that really, and I even had a pastor. I mean, there was a pastor in the past that he wouldn't listen. Here, go take this. Go figure it out. Just do it on your own. I'm like, okay. <laughs> but here in the Bible, David is showing us how to handle life, not religiously. There's not a scripted formula for it. All of us are different. And if you've ever endured the loss of a loved one, you'll inevitably face waves of emotion. What is the makeup of a trial? Trials will push a person's emotional makeup, and for some, it shakes them off of their foundation. Have you ever had someone that maybe lost a loved one, and they went, as you would say, they went crazy? Or they began to do some things that were uh, very uncharacteristic of who they were. Your emotional fortitude is tied to whom you're committed and to whom you trust. If you're committed to yourself and to, uh, and to trusting yourself alone, and, and your bedrock of your life because you've been the, the master of your own destiny, and something happens outside of your control and you're powerless, it can be absolutely catastrophic mentally and emotionally. This is why many marriages don't last, because when the hard times come, many show they only love themselves, they trust themselves, and they're committed to their, their own self-preservation. Each spouse, their own self-preservation, and they part ways. Their trust is in themselves and the knowledge of life. David, the sorrows of hell compass me, the snares of death prevented me. I mean, he's giving, whoa, life is not easy right now. I mean, in, in a marriage where things begin to fall apart, there's no commitment to a promise till death do us part. 
They're not morally and spiritually bound to fulfill their commitments because their commitment they made was, well, as long as I'm okay with it, I'll follow through with it. But I'm not going to be bound to the commitment I made on that marriage altar to my wife. You know, if you're called upon in John 15, 13, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That's a serious trial. If your friend is facing imminent uh, death, that's a serious trial. And it's someone saying, listen, I'll lay my life down for you. You're putting a trust and a commitment. I would also say you know where you're going. But they're in battle. Many times someone will, for the sake of the troops, they'll throw themselves upon a grenade or something else to save the rest of the troop from disaster. I mean, they're showing a tremendous trust and a commitment. I'm committed to this, my brothers, or, you know, brothers and sisters in arms. What is the makeup of Christ? Look with me at John 10. I'm laying some of the ideas here for this trial. John chapter 10, verse 10. I want to know the amazing thing about Christ and his love, which is exhibited by his trust and his commitment. Look with me at John 10, 10 through 14. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and destroy. This would be Satan or any thief. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for his sheep. That's quite a bit of commitment. If you give your own life, that's complete commitment. But he that is an hireling, and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth, and the wolf catcheth them, and scattereth the sheep. <coughs> Excuse me. The hireling fleeth, because he is an hireling, and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. Christ tells us, when trials come, and the wolves are encircling to come upon you, in this instance, the wolves are circling to kill the sheep, he gave his life for us. It's unconditional, self-sacrifice, complete trust and complete commitment for our well-being. A hireling or a pastor who is out for the money and prestige when the, when the hard times come, I'm out of here. I don't want a part of this. Get me out of here. It's all about the money, the prestige I get. But if, as soon as the money's gone or the prestige is gone, see you later. Man or woman who's not committed to anyone uh, but themselves, they will flee when hard times come. A lack of commitment for others in the time and adversity shows of one who is self-driven. You only trust in yourself. A truly caring shepherd, as Jesus Christ is, makes it abundantly known that you are his. A parent in the early days of their child has to spend many nights with little to no sleep. They sacrifice to bring that child. I mean, they are committed to bringing that child to maturity. Parenting and marriage are great examples of commitment. As soon as the child is conceived, really, there's a, an agreement naturally that's made to care for that child. Unfortunately, there is a great love of pleasure, a love of self, and children are readily disregarded as a hindrance to one's career, pursuit of pleasure, or even finding a lifelong partner. And they'll leave the child behind. Now think about the foster system. Many that love their pleasures more than caring for a child. 
Christ's entire person is concerned with those who are under his care. He says, when hard times come, I'm not leaving you. Now I want to look at a test of focus. Look with me, verse 7, here in 2 Samuel 22. This is all laying the foundation, getting us to just think about trust. I know a little bit lengthier portion here, but I wanted to bring it down to an everyday, a very applicable idea here uh, with which we can sympathize and understand. In my, what does David do? So 5 and 6, we understand the circumstances. Verse 7, what does he do? A test of our focus. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God, and he did hear my voice out of his temple, and my cry did enter into his ears. As I said before, trials or powerlessness can lead you to five likely conclusions. Utter despair, anger, outrage, bitterness, any one of those, very strong emotions. Number two, self-deceived notion. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Number three, seeking a secular source for assistance. Number four, driving you to seek the Lord, but with conditions attached on how he responds. God, I will do this if you do this. God, if you do this, then I will do this. We think it's some like transactional thing with him. Quid pro quo, right? You give this, I do this. Or, number five, you cast yourself upon him with no expectations other than God. Number five and six, God, here's the circumstances. I I don't know where to go. Here's the real test of your faith. Your faith is tested when times get tough. That shows you what type of Christian you are. If you, like many of us, seek the Lord with conditions attached, then we are the one ultimately in charge. God, I will do this if you do this. Who's the one making the conditions? Who's the one writing the transaction? You are. You're the one saying, God, if you do this, I'll do this. You're not letting God lead, you're leading. Because you want to be the master of your own destiny. Sometimes we only want God for what he can do for us. God, I pray to you, uh, I, I need this, right? This isn't love. This isn't complete trust and commitment to him. I mean, in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. There's a trust and a commitment that I'm going to keep his commandments because I love him. John 14, 21, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved to my father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. I mean, there's a trust and the commitment that I'm just going to trust God. I'm going to be committed to him. And it's showing my love. 1 John 5, 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Again, obedience. Hebrews eleven six. 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Faith. I'm trusting myself to him and then committing him. When someone comes to Jesus Christ for salvation, They are putting their trust in what Jesus did on a cross, on the cross. The resurrection. They're putting their trust in that. That what the Bible said, that Jesus died on the cross, he rose again, that that is sufficient to pay for all the sin debt I've ever done. And you're committing your eternity into his hands. You're not trusting in yourself or good works to get you to heaven. You're trusting Jesus. Now, what is the condition if we trust ourselves? In my distress, 
I want to look at several different individuals this morning. And this will, when we look at these few examples of individuals who trusted in themselves, what is the outcome? Genesis chapter 13, Lot, there in Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot is told Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be destroyed. In Genesis 13, 10, and Lot lifted up his eyes, beheld all the plain of Jordan that was well watered everywhere. Before the Lord God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. As thou comest unto Zoar, verse 13, but the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. This is God's assessment of them. Lot says, wow, there's money to be made there. My kids can do well there. There's good education. There's good careers. There's good money. What would he lose? He lost most of his children to marrying the locals. These married children didn't leave Sodom, even under threat of destruction. Oh, yeah, Dad, get out of here. Yeah, 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 whatever. He lost his wife when she was leaving, who looked back and turned into a pillar of salt, potentially thinking about her children and her grandbabies. He lost his honor by his two virgin daughters who got him drunk to seduce him to having incest. Gross. And it also says he daily vexed his soul. How about Elimelech in Ruth chapter 1? Elimelech is a man of Bethlehem, Judah. Ruth chapter 1. Look with me here. Joshua judges Ruth. So there, Genesis, Ex, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Joshua judges Ruth. Ruth chapter 1. In my distress, I called upon who? Who are you calling? Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. A certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malon and Kilion, Ephratites of Bethlehem, Judah. They came into the country of Moab and continued there, and Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. If you read on ten years later, these two sons die. They would marry pagan women. What started as a sojourning, which is a temporary residence, why did he leave? Well, there's famine in Bethlehem, Judah. You know the name uh, Bethlehem means the house of bread? God's hands upon it? Yes, there was famine in the land. Well, it, food is scarce here. We better leave. What did God think? What started as a sojourning or a temporary lodging ended up becoming a permanent residence and a place of death. Elimelech and his family were sucked into the comfortable lifestyle and Elimelech's sons would marry pagan wives to their own demise. You see, different worldviews in a marriage or in a home will many times degrade to whatever the lowest standard is. Just because things were unfortunate where Elimelech was there in Bethlehem, Judah. There's a famine here. I've got to get out of here. I've got to go to where the grass is greener. How about Abraham? He goes down into Egypt, which he shouldn't have. He goes into Egypt. He's like, oh, the Egyptian king's going to kill me. Uh, here, here's my wife. Take her. She's my uh, sister. Here, king, take her. And then God intervenes and says, hey, Pharaoh, uh, you're dealing with another man's wife. Uh, I didn't know. I know you didn't know, but give her back. Okay. I mean, that's essentially there. Okay. What, what happened because of Abraham's trusting in himself? 
he gained to himself Hagar the maid. And then later in life, they're like, well, God promised me I'm going to have a kid. Sarah's like, well, I'm not getting any younger here. I'm like, you know, I'm like, uh, I'm not a young lady anymore. I'm kind of past the childbearing years. Uh, Abraham, go into my, my uh, maid Hagar. Uh, you go have a child with her. Okay. She goes in, has a child. Hagar has a child with Abraham. Sarah's like, ah, you bear a child? I can't. I'm envious of you. Get out of my house. You have a marital dispute. Lack of trusting God. You now have the Arabs and the Israelis. You have a, oh, a complete division because of a lack of trust. Trusting in your own philosophy. How about Proverbs chapter 5, verses 3 through 12? You trust in love. This idea of some emotional euphoria. In Proverbs chapter 5. For the lips of a strange woman drop as in honeycomb, and her mouth is smoother than oil. I mean, it's like a woman in the workplace. Man, she compliments you. Or it's a man in the workplace. Wow, you're an amazing worker. But her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold on hell. Lest thou shouldest ponder the path of life, her ways are movable, that thou canst not know them. Hear me now, therefore, O ye children, and depart not from the words of my mouth. Remove thy way far from her, and come not nigh the door of her house, lest thou give thine honor unto others, and thy years unto the cruel. Lest strangers be filled with thy wealth, and thy labors be in the house of a stranger, and thou mournest alas, when thy flesh and thy body are consumed, and say, How have I hated instruction, and my heart despised reproof. These are individuals. I mean, they're jumping from one relationship to another, to another, to another. I mean, they're trying to romance someone, bring them unto themselves. I mean, there's no real commitment. There's no steadiness. There's no, you know what, we might disagree. There's a conflict in this relationship. I'm going to stick it out because I made a promise to you. Many a person who has lived a party lifestyle ended up in life with multiple partners because the only foundation is pleasure, and pleasures change, but they never satisfy. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 11.25, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Where is your trust? Well, my trust is in myself. The trust is in my pleasures. How about Luke 16? Turn with me here to Luke 16. I'm giving some examples of some individuals that made a choice to trust themselves. Now, now all, not all circumstances necessarily end up in catastrophe. But they always end up in a catastrophe towards God, if you trust yourself. Luke 19, or Luke, uh, excuse me, 16, sorry, Luke 16, apologize. Luke 16, verse 19. <clears throat> there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. If perchance a person never returns to God, only trusts in themselves, committed themselves, trusts in their wealth, then they'll, they'll reap the consequences of their self-love. Here's a man. I mean, if you look at him today, he's wealthy. He's got all that he wants. He seems like he's got life, you know, by the reins. What happens in eternity, though? Verse 22. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Did it really work to trust in yourself? Where can money take you in the next life? How much money can you take with you to the next life? 
Can you take your career with you to the next life? How about Luke chapter 12? Luke chapter 12, verse 16. <coughs> Excuse me, Luke 12, 16. He spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. Here's a man, he's retiring. And I will say to my soul, Soul, oh, it's much good laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. How many people do you know have retired, but shortly after the retirement, they perished, they, they passed away. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? You have all of this good. You have all this food. You have all this health and wealth and prosperity. Where is it going to go? Verse 21, So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. He trusts in himself. He trusts in his comforts. But he doesn't have any trust. He has no plans for eternity. There will come a day of reckoning and a test of where your trust and your commitment lie. I could speak of Adam and Eve whose trust uh, in their lust to eat that apple led to great trouble. It is, if it's yourself, you'll be bound to nothing greater than personal strength when the hard times come. If the commitment is to your lusts or your own philosophy of life, then you will reap the due reward. It is in the hard times of life that test where your trust lies. And how strong your object of trust really is. And how committed you are to this object or person of trust. For many professing believers, the tests of a person's commitment to church and to God was tested during COVID. And all too many chose the comforts of life over a resilience to God and his church. Such testing has caused a great falling away from God. It shows a person's trust to be in themselves and not God. We will never rise above the greatness of the object of our trust and commitment. David says here, he says, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. What was David's response to the great trials and waves of death upon him? Yes, it was distress. We're human. We face distress in our lives. What did he do with his distress? Did he run? Did he rest in his riches? Did he get angry? Did he go to any friends? Did he go to social media to complain about his situation if it was available? Did he abandon his family? No. He cast himself upon God completely for help. This is what should occur. It takes time learning that our ways are far, superior, far inferior to God's ways. Isaiah 55, 9, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways and your ways. So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts and your thoughts. I have to understand that there is a God in heaven. Hard times test your Christianity. Are you who you say you are? You know, sometimes, though, after taking matters into our own hands, and you've realized, oh, I've kind of gone down a little detour on my own. I kind of made a bad decision. How about like Jezebel, uh, uh, Elijah? I mean, Jezebel was like, Elijah, 
Judas made me look foolish. 450 prophets of Baal were killed. Uh, God came down. He, lightning came down. It consumed uh, all of the, the ox. It consumed all of that water. I mean, it totally, you showed us to be shameful and frauds. I'm going to kill you, Elijah. I'm going to get you. And Elijah ran for his life. Ah! So here he is by the brook Cherith. And then he hides in a cave. 1 Kings 19, 9. Look with me here. I'll be done here shortly. First Kings 19, 9. And he, Elijah, came thither into a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? God's saying, Elijah, I know where you're at. You can't hide from me. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like my daughter saying, let's play hide and seek. You know, your head's sticking out far. You're like, well, I kind of see her right there. Where is she? <laughs> Elijah, where are you? What are you doing here? Verse 10, and he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, throw down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left... And they seek my life to take it away. God, I served you. And the people, they don't like me. Essentially what he's saying. I mean, he's, he's God, I did what you told me and people are mad at me. Oh. Ever, ever been there? You've done what God wanted you to do and some people didn't like what you were doing? Some people ridiculed you? And then you're thinking, oh, is this really what you want, God? I'll say I've been there many times. <laughs> Look with me, verse 12. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, a still, small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering of the cave. And behold, there came a voice in him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. Stop throwing the pity party. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop with your emotional, uh, you know, we are all emotions, and I'm not disregarding emotions. I have strong emotions, and so do you. And we all express it in our own unique ways. But David says, in my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God. You know what? Tears are okay sometimes. It's okay to express some real emotion to God. He pours it out. He says, God, I'm vulnerable. I, 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 don't, know how, I don't have a clue what to do. God, I'm empty. Elijah's making excuses. God, I'm the only righteous man left. There's none left. God says, no, there's not. There's more than you. Get your, get your mind off yourself. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop trusting in your own emotions. Stop trusting in only what you can see. And how about you stop tr start trusting in him who sees everything? In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God and to hear my voice out of the temple and my cry did enter into his ears. You know what we need to do sometimes? We need to take our problems to God, get alone in the prayer closet, and just say, God, here's the solution. Here's everything. Just lay it all out. 
God, I'm frustrated. I'm angry. Why are you not working? And get in this book. You need to hear from him. David says, I poured it all out. I was vulnerable. And he heard me. Because that love expressed a complete trust and a complete com- commitment into God. My friend, the, the two pillars, the twin pillars of love, trust and commitment, we don't trust anyone, let alone God. And we're not committed to anyone but ourselves. So we don't let go of anything. And so when those waves come, bam, 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 you're tossed all around emotionally. Because you've never learned how to just trust and be committed to God. If God is the one leading your life, you can learn to trust and be committed. This evening I'll talk about verses 2 through 4, a testament of faith. But my friend, we have an amazing God. We got to get real. We got to trust him. There is nowhere else to trust. Can't trust the government. You can't trust sometimes even your own neighbors. Now, I'm not saying completely distrust the government, but I'm just saying there's caution with everyone we have in society. Who can I turn to when everything else seems like it's against me? You have to turn somewhere because if you turn to yourself, you're going to find, you're going to come to a place of emptiness and you have no place to turn. You're going to have to trust someone. And you've got to get right, you've got to trust God. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. What wonderful words. As I bring this to the conclusion this morning, God's given us wonderful, wonderful objects of trust and commitment. Some 12 12 years ago when I made that commitment to my wife till death to us part, it was more than saying I love you. It's saying I'm trusting and I'm committed to you to the exclusion of all else. When Jesus died on that cross, he said I'm trusting in the Father, and I'm committed to you. I'm not committed to anything else. I'm committed to the Father, and I'm committed to you because I want you as my own. We have to get our eyes off of ourselves and off of the circumstances and begin to get it on the one who sees it, the whole picture. My friends... As I sat there in my office, and I began to think about these truths of my father, I can relate. But I have to do verse 7. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. As we come to the time of invitation this morning, Number one, I want to ask you, what are you trusting for your eternity? If you were to go out and get in an accident and you breathe your last breath, do you know where you're going? You're not guaranteed tomorrow. 
Have you put your complete trust and faith in Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of all your sins? Because sin is a trespass against God. It's in the courtroom of God. I've broken his laws, and so I'm guilty. There's justice. And Jesus says, listen, I paid all the justice for you, but you've got to receive my gift. In simple faith, if you ask him to forgive you and be your savior, my friend, you'll be forgiven. It's not in a religious system. It's in Jesus. And if you're a Christian this morning, and maybe you've had some hard times, maybe it's time that you get alone with God and you start pouring out your heart. In my distress, I called. And you to see what he wants you to do. And you know what? When you do that, you can come back to verses 2 through 4. That can be the testimony. With heads bowed and eyes closed in a time of quiet this morning, no piano playing. When you're done praying, after your heads are bowed and eyes are closed, when you're done praying and talking to God, feel free to look up. When everyone's looking up, I'll conclude in prayer. The first question I want to ask you is, again, do you know for sure where you're spending eternity? Number two, if you are a Christian and you can say, Pastor, I know for sure that I've trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of all my sins. How are you doing in regards to trusting and being committed to him? What are the pillars under love of God in your life? If you have questions or thoughts, I'd love to meet with you after the service. If you desire to speak, Christians, we just need to learn to trust. Trust God. It's a hurtful thing to take matters into our own hands and get ahead of God. You know what? If you've gone the wrong way, do like what Elijah did. God met him where he was at, but you got to get going. Get moving. Maybe come to the Lord and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this time. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to present your word. And Lord, I thank you for the work you did in my heart. Father, it is a great reassurance. To know that in my distress, I can call out to you. God, I can be open and transparent. Father, there is a relationship that is much more than some cursory prayer over a meal. God, it's a, I can put my complete trust and commitment to you. I can show you my love by my trust and commitment to you. Keeping your commandments. God, you are so good. Lord, there are things outside of what we understand, but we have to understand that living by faith is a trust and a commitment that, God, you know where you're going and will follow. Lord, I yield today to thee. God, I pray that if there's anyone that's not saved, God, that they would call out to you. And if, for those of us as Christians, for myself included, Lord, help us just to trust. God, may the commitment that we make 
not be upon ourselves, but may we bring it back upon thyself. I love you, Jesus. In your precious and holy name I pray. Amen. Thank you.